Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Lifestyle Mastery and I'm excited to have Rob Walling, who's a serial entrepreneur, author, podcasting angel investor. He's the author of the book, Start Small, Stay Small. Um, and he runs a popular podcast called Startups for the Rest of Us. Rob is, uh, was also the founder of emailing email marketing software called Drip, which was acquired by Lead Pages uh, in 2016. Uh, and he's coming with this new book called the, Sale, the SaaS Playbook. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Awesome. So, you know, uh, you, you've been, uh, again, as I mentioned before, uh, I got into SaaS. You've been the OG of, you know, the, the SaaS world. You've done a very popular podcast, conference, you've written a lot of books. But what got you really interested in this world of startups? Really, it was a, for me, it was about freedom. I come at it not from the, I want to change the world, you know, like maybe a Silicon Valley, you know, make a dent in the universe type Apple computer thing or build a Google or a Facebook. I really grew up solidly working class and money was always an issue when I was growing up. And I realized that entrepreneurship was probably the best way for me to make enough money that I could do the things I wanted. It was always about the freedom and not really about the money itself. Got it. And, uh, and you started off uh, with .NET invoice and, you know, you caught a couple of startups which did not work out. Uh, and then did you, did you go on to buy Hittail? Was that the first big hit you had? That was the first bigger hit. Yeah, I before so I bought Hittail, which was a SaaS app. It's SEO keyword tool, and for long tail keywords, I bought that in 2011. Before that, I had cobbled together about six or eight different products. That between all of them made me like I don't know 150 grand a year in 2007, eight dollars, you know, six, seven, eight. And so I was I was doing pretty well, living in California, married with with one kid, uh, and I worked about. I don't know, eight, 10 months of the four hour work week where I really, everything was on autopilot. And I was like, this is the life. This is what I wanted my entire life growing up. And then I got there and I was like, this is kind of boring. I need to do something more and you know, it's seriously, I actually read the book, uh, Warren Buffett's book, Snowball. Yeah. And I just listened to his story and I was so impacted. And I actually started talking to my wife that night and I was like crying. I was like, I need to do something bigger. I need to do something more ambitious for me, not for the world, but just to just to keep myself interested and to prove I can do it. And so Hittail was that next thing. It was kind of like trying to be 10x bigger than the thing I did prior. Mm, got it. And, um, you know, you, we have a lot of interesting platforms like MicroAcquire, which allows people to buy companies. But, you know, what made you, you know, buy a company like Hittail and then, you know, allow it to grow? Right, instead of building it. So yeah. I found out pretty early that, Buying allows you to skip six, 12 months of building to plus 12, 18 months of finding product market fit. So it, it was just a, at that point, a shortcut. The only reason I had money to buy is that I used to, I worked a day job and I would consult or, or write code on the side as a freelancer, $50 an hour, and then it was 75 and then it was hundred. And I put all that money in a bank account. And so over the course of a couple of years, I saved up $11,000, which was more money than more cash than I had ever had in my entire life. And instead of buying a car, I bought .NET invoice and it was a little software product that I grew. It was doing like 500, 600 a month when I bought it. I grew it to about three grand, four grand a month, which made our house payment plus our car payment. But, you know, I just, it, it really, I won't say changed my life, but in a way I was like, it changed my life in the sense of, oh, 
this is totally possible because there was no model for this, right? The only model for starting software companies at the time was beg people for money, get investors to write you a check, go big, go big, go big. And I was like, whoa, this is like, I hadn't heard the term lifestyle business. Like none of that existed, right? This is 2005, six, 2005, 2006 when I'm buying it. And so then I just, I built a few and I bought a few and I cobbled together that little portfolio. And by the time Hittail came around, uh, I, I think I paid 30,000, 31,000 for it. I had saved up 31,000 from my, I'd stair-stepped my way up, you know, with these prior uh, businesses. Mm, got it. And and you also uh, started Drip, uh, which you, you know, ended up selling to like lead pages, a tool which I uh, still use. But what, what made you, what made you build it and, and the exit? Did you also look at, you know, uh, raising money from investors when you were mm -hmm. building Drip? Yeah. So after Hittail, uh, well, not after, I was still running Hittail and decided, you know, it was kind of on autopilot. It was doing about 30 grand, 25, 30 grand a month. And I was the only employee, I had two contractors or something. So it was almost all profit. So again, I love, I like stair-stepped my life up to that next step of like, whoa, I now am effectively wealthy. I mean, it's not like I had a million dollars in the bank, but I had 253 and a grand of income coming in a year, which again, my, you know, my dad's best year, he made a few hundred thousand, you know, I mean, it's just like uh, 35 years old or whatever. And like, this is crazy. So I wanted to do the next thing and I wanted it to be 10 X what Hittail was. And so, um, started drip in 20, really it was 2013 that we kind of built it, launched it towards the end of that. I absolutely thought about raising funding, but I kind of self-funded it with Hittail money. You know, Hittail was throwing off 20, 25 grand a month. I was taking a little bit of a salary and then taking the rest of that to basically self-fund Drip. At a certain point, it would have made sense to raise probably half a million or a million with Drip when it, once we were doing, you know, again, a million a year, two million a year as we were growing. But by that point, there was so much acquisition interest that I was kind of making the decision, do I raise money and do this for another three to five years or do I sell now and and basically put cash in my bank account that means I never have to work again and that was the decision that I had to make mm. okay got it and uh, uh, and you know you you've talked about bootstrapping uh, businesses but uh, but you've had the experience of building you know hit tail and drip and then you you know sold it off to lead pages but uh, how does how does a person get to decide that you know should they be building a bootstrap business or should they level up just like you did or should they just you know start a venture back business or mm. you know look at building a venture start, uh, side business yeah i mean here's the thing less than 1% of companies even tech companies should raise venture so the default is bootstrap yeah and that doesn't seem to you know that's not the narrative in TechCrunch or mashable and venture beat like the narrative is oh if you're not raising funding why not but really most businesses should just be bootstrapped and i say this as someone who has bootstrapped a bunch of businesses but I've never been anti-venture capital. I mean, I wrote my book, Start Small, Stay Small, you mentioned in the intro, 2010. And in the first chapter, I say, I'm not anti-venture capital. I'm just anti-everyone thinking venture capital is the only way to start a tech company, you know, or a software company. That's not, that's not true. And that's really what my life's mission now has come down to is like showing the world that bootstrapping or mostly bootstrapping, I call it, like if you raise 100,000, $200,000, I know that sounds like a lot of money. You're still pretty much a bootstrap company. You're not, it's not until you raise in the millions that like it changes dramatically how, how you connect. I, I am now technically, I don't like saying this, but I'm technically a venture capitalist. I, I've raised a, with my co-founder a $42 million 
$42 million in funds, and we invest in bootstrap SaaS companies. So mm. I'm certainly not anti-venture capital. However, if you were to ask me today, by default, what would I do? I would probably bootstrap the company. Um, it's, I would bootstrap it until it makes sense to raise funding. That's what you do. You know what I mean? Like you don't, almost no one will give you money for an idea. Almost no one will give you money for pre-launch, like pre-revenue. Like you need to get to the point where you have proven out this business model a bit such that, you know, folks are willing to give you a check at a reasonable valuation. But most, you know, if you really are thinking, I want to build a two-sided marketplace, you should probably raise venture capital. If you're thinking, I want to make a dent in the universe and build a billion dollar company or, or go to zero, that's a venture capital goal, right? I want to, I'm going to be in a market that is winner take all. It's moving very fast, like AI or AR, VR, AR, probably uh, if I were building drone technology today, you know, what is, what is like the cutting bleeding edge? Very hard to bootstrap companies in those spaces because so much money is going in. So in, the, in those spaces, I would say, all right, I'd probably lean towards VC. Almost everything else, I would bootstrap it today until I got to the point where, eh, Maybe, maybe I'm doing 50 grand a month and now I want to raise funding or hundred grand a month and now I want to raise funding. That's, you know, that's not a bad way to go. Hmm, got it. And uh, I'm, I want to talk about your, your, the, the startup accelerator, tiny seed, you invest into, into startups, but, uh, but it's, is a, uh, the idea to, you know, invest and, and push the founders to get an exit within 10 years, like, like how a VC firm works. Is that the model that you're also working on? No, we our biggest thing is to give founders optionality. That is like our number one goal. We invest like Y Combinator, where we take a certain amount of equity, usually through a safe, sometimes through an actual price round. And we have, we invest between a hundred and well, it's between 100 and 250,000 usually US. And we allow founders to, if they want to run their company for long-term and take profits out, that's okay. If they want to sell the company within 10 years, that's okay. If they want to go raise more funding three months later, a year later, three years later, that's okay. We'll help them. They can raise it from angels. We've had one, uh, actually, I guess two companies now raised from venture, from true like raise VC levels. Um, about a third of our companies, I think, have raised follow-on funding. And the other two thirds just said, you know what? I'm good with mostly bootstrapping and the tiny seed money has gotten me to the point where I want to be. I will say one caveat to what I said earlier of if I were doing it, I'd get to 50,000 MRR, 100,000 MRR before I'd look for funding. Tiny Seed, we fund companies between about 1,000 MRR up to about 30 or 40. Our, our highest MRR ever was 100, but the sweet spot is 1 to 40. Um, and that's not a bad time. It's not a bad time to raise from a something like Tiny Seed where it's not just about the money. The vast majority of the benefit we give Money's fine, but the majority is our mentorship, our advice. We have a year-long accelerator program with in-person retreats, and you're in a batch of ambitious founders. You know that's the value that that folks get, and we overwhelmingly that is the kind of the thing that Tiny Seed founders mention as the as the reason that they join. They say, "Oh, the money's nice. 25 percent of companies really need the money that we you know we give them, and the other three quarters are like the money's fine. I'll spend it, but it's it's the SaaS guidance that I'm getting from you know your mentor list." Got it. And uh, you know, uh, Rob, you've been into SaaS for quite a long time. Uh, why, why do you think you know SaaS is the best business model? 
Oh, so many reasons. Us is sub subscriptions. Like everybody wants subscriptions, right? We yeah. see e-commerce with, you know, razors and t-shirts trying to become subscription because that is the most incredible way. To, it's, it's, it's a cheat code. It's a business cheat code. And SaaS has that built in. So that's number one. Number two is you can build a subscription e-commerce business where you're sending, you know, bubbly water to people's homes every week for a certain amount. And the cost of these and the warehousing and the logistics, very expensive, low margin business, SaaS is software, very high margin, oftentimes 90%, 80 to 90% net, mar uh, I'm sorry, gross margins, 30 to 50% net margins, that's net profit at scale, I'm talking millions, tens of millions, you know, hundreds of millions, you can have that. So it's incredible. And then really, the third reason is, if you decide you do want to sell the exit multiples are insane even today they've stuff has slowed down due to the economy but it will be back but we've seen founders sell for five times i've seen founders sell for 10 times annual recurring revenue forward looking you know so it's like you build a business to 2 million and you're looking at 10 to 20 million dollar exit like where else, where else does that happen? You know, it's certainly the e-commerce is what, one to two X, maybe two to three. I don't know exactly what it is, but you know, the numbers are, are crazy. I'm not saying you have to sell, but should you, should you decide you are building incredible amounts of value and net worth for yourself? Right. Got it. And, uh, you know, uh, in the last couple of weeks, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, hype about chat GPT and AI. And do you think AI will replace SaaS models and SaaS businesses uh, you know, uh, especially with, uh, you know, one dimension apps, uh, do you think, you know, Microsoft and AI could open AI could, you know, go out and kill those business models? Not really. I mean, I think, I think there will be a shift. And I think if you've built a super simple product that does one thing, Hey, I'm going to generate tweets from you based on your, bio based on your past tweets. I'm going to generate the next tweet. It's like, yeah, that's a solved problem now. And it's free, you know, um, trying to charge for AI image generation is a commodity at this point, right? So there's things like that that are going to disappear. But I think no, to be honest, if you're looking at stuff that's replacing custom SaaS, no code is more likely to do that, right? With like Airtable, Bubble, Softer, even, you know, Zapier, whatever, like within TinySeed and MicroConf, we have needed I think three, maybe four, just custom SaaS apps for like our application flow where companies apply, founders apply to be, excuse me, part of Tiny Seed, and then they go through a flow. We used to pay $6,000 a year to a custom tool for that. And it was a pretty crappy tool. And my team built it out in Air, the entire thing, better flow exactly to our, our standards in Airtable in like three weeks. That's it. And so we canceled that. So we pay Airtable $200 a year now. And it's not even about the money. Honestly, it's about the it's about the workflow and the time savings. Similarly, we, you know, I, I put out a YouTube video 52 weeks a year. Um, it's, it's, it's the job, but it's, it's a lot. So that's microconf.com slash YouTube. If people want to check that out. Um, we need a production flow for that, right? First, we use Google Sheets, then we moved to Notion. And then my producer, who's not technical, he built an entire video production flow in Airtable in two weeks. And then we did it for the podcast, you know, so it's, you, you get the idea. So I think if anything's going to kind of impact SaaS, I mean, yes, AI will impact it in the sense that if you're running a SaaS today, you should be thinking about how can I pull AI into it? But I think no code's more of a, maybe a, a threat to, to SaaS. Mailman is a email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive, you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year 
on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Got it. And, uh, you know, I want to talk about, uh, you know, pricing, especially, you know, I'm working in an early stage startup. Um, how should uh, how should one structure pricing? And uh, and do you think freemium is a good model or, or do you think, you know, in early stage freemium should not be there? So you uh, by default, so freemium works in a minority of cases. And if I were to guess, it's like 10, 10, 20% of companies. So if in doubt, don't do freemium. <laughs> That's it, because most companies don't need it. However, there are some specific criteria um, that I have learned from a good friend of mine. His, his name's Ruben. He runs Signwell. It's electronic signature. I steal so many of my good ideas from this guy, but he has he's done freemium multiple times and has done it very well. And he has great. These are the criteria. He said, if your app is very easy to get onboarded, very quick to value, consider freemium. Okay. And I'm going to give you an example of quick to value, not quick to value. So you use SavvyCal, right? For booking. Yep. For booking uh, uh, instead of Calendly, right? So SavvyCal, you log in, you have a link in like five minutes, super fast to value. You don't need to look around documentation and do all this stuff. So that's, that's a yes. I'm going to talk about Drip, which is my last startup, email marketing automation provider. You log in, you need to import your subscribers, you need to write emails, you need to configure workflow. I mean, it was weeks of work, right? So no, freemium, not a good idea at Drip, good idea at SavvyCal, good idea at SignWell, which is electronic signature, because what do you need? You log in, it's like, oh, I'm gonna upload a doc and I'm gonna send it to someone. I have five minutes value, right? So that's the, the first one. Second one is you don't have a high incremental cost per user, which is kind of self-explanatory, right? Like Dropbox, I know they did freemium, but they, under my model, they probably shouldn't have because it was very expensive disk space, right? Versus, and even Drip, like we sent emails, we had to pay, send grid. So it was, you know, there was cost there. Um, and then high support load, pretty obvious. If you're doing freemium, you know, if, if people need a lot of support, that's not great. And then the last one is if you have some kind of virality, some kind of viral loop, then consider freemium. And if you don't, I would probably not do it. By freemium, I'm, I'm sorry, by viral, let me give you a couple examples. SavvyCal, you sent your link to me. If I hadn't used, I click through, I'm at SavvyCal's website. Hey, powered by SavvyCal. I'm like, this is kind of cool, isn't it, right? There's a, there's a bit of virality for every user that SavvyCal gets. They get, I'm sure their viral coefficient is above one. You know, I'm sure they're getting other other people to sign up. Similar with electronic signature. Um, funny that sign, Signwell and SavvyCal, I'll keep mentioning, but uh, Signwell is the other one where it's like, when I go to sign an electronic signature doc and I send it out to someone, they see it. And they're like, oh, this is a better interface than DocuSign and HelloSign. I think I might try it out, right? So those are the viral points versus something like email service provider is usually not a very viral um, viral app. Mm, got it. But but if if I'm not offering freemium, but can I offer you know free trials of yeah. uh, that's, that's something I should do. Yeah, yeah very different. You know, freemium is free forever with but limits, forever. right? Yeah. Versus a free trial is someone wanting to poke in, and you know the bigger decision is like, well, well, there's a couple of decisions. Do I ask for credit card upfront or not with a free trial? And do I allow a free trial self sign up or do I require a demo upfront? And those those are the questions that I think people um, often struggle with. Okay, got it, got it. And um, uh, you know, you know, especially when when you uh, are working in SaaS, you're always looking at, at getting more customers. But uh, what is you know, if you if you're doing it from scratch in 2023, what would be your strategy on how do you get customers? What what are the marketing touch points? Would you look at what are the sales channels? What are yeah. So there are 
I've found 20 B2B okay. SaaS marketing approaches, exactly 20. And I'm sure I will find 21 at some point, but I put them here in this book. <laughs> Kick, Kickstarter is live, um, you know, when this, when this episode goes live. But I have them listed. But what I have is I have what I call the big five. Is that what I call? I don't remember even what I named them, but there's five that I see working for a lot of companies. And then there's another five that I see working for some, and then there's kind of 10 that it's like, well, it depends, you know? And so the five that I see most common are things that you're going to have be familiar with content marketing, SEO, cold outreach, whether it be email, phone, or LinkedIn integrations and partnerships. I combine those into those are kind of the same thing. Integrations require code partnerships don't, but both of them are business development and advertising, usually pay-per-click, right? So I haven't written here on my notebook uh, for those with the video, but those are my big five. And again, those are in the book. You don't have to memorize them here. And then I have another five that if I were starting today, I would evaluate you know, these top five and think, what space am I in? Which of these do I think has the most potential? You can research this, right? You can go and look at the Google Keyword Planner, Facebook Ad Planner and say, is there an Instagram Ad Planner, whatever? Is there enough volume and and what are the, what are the costs per click? What is my annual contract value? Can I afford what I estimate as a payback period for content and SEO? I go to Ahrefs and SEM Rush, and I look at keyword volume. You know, is it a space with a lot people? A lot of people search for X Y Z term, or sometimes it's not. There are some spaces where really cold outreach is is definitely the best uh, best approach. So. While you can't get to 100% certainty something will work, I think you can get up well above 50, 50, 60% on all of these just by doing a bit of research. Hmm, got it. Um, you know, uh, as I mentioned before the call, you know, I've been into uh, into business development and revenue, been into partnerships. Um, any advice for, you know, you know, outreach, especially you talked about phone, email, and uh, and LinkedIn, you know, what should be the ideal cadence of, you know, somebody who's just starting off as a sales guy in a SaaS company, the ideal cadence of how many people he should reach out to so that, you know, uh, he could get those meetings and then, you know, get those uh, signed customers. Do you mean for selling my product or for partnerships? For, for selling the products. Selling the product? Yeah. So I will admit that I am not an expert on sales and especially outbound. Um I, but I do see a lot of companies doing it, right? I've invested in 126 companies or something through Tiny Seed and, and on my own. These are almost all SaaS companies. And so I see what's working and what's not. So I will say that if I was doing cold outreach, um, the, the biggest mistake I see people making is sending 200 cold, cold emails a month and saying, oh, it didn't work. And yeah. you can't, you can't do that. The volume has to be high, 1,000, 2,000 a month to even get, get a blip. The other thing is these days it's, it's omnichannel, right? It is you send an email, you do a LinkedIn, uh, connect, you maybe cold call, maybe not, that all depends, but it's doing multiple things. Um, and then the third, third thing I see is people actually going to experts. If you're not, if you have about $2,000 a month to spend on this, you go to a company like Postaga that has a done for you service. They do cold outreach for you. And there's a few others. There's like retriever.co and you don't need a CMO.com. Like there's, it's not that much money. And now if you're truly bootstrapped, yes, you got to do this yourself, get the right tools. There's a bunch of, there's a great YouTube videos on just how to kind of get the stack, right? You don't do this manually in your Gmail account. You pay for a yeah. few pieces of software to do it. But honestly, these days, given if I had raised even a small amount of funding and I wanted to experiment with cold, I would pay that few thousand bucks a month, even if there's a three, three month minimum or whatever, and just look at it as like, well, this is a $6,000 experiment. 
Uh, they know what they're doing more than I do with cold outreach because they're a company that does it all the time. And I'm going to hand it to them. And if it doesn't work, at least I know eh, it probably doesn't work in my space, right? Probably. If I try it and it doesn't work, I don't know if I'm just not good at it. So that's the thing I've always you know, kind of struggled with is um, when you have to do everything yourself, you, you don't know if it's the approach or you know, the marketing approach itself, or if it's you that's basically executing it in, improperly. Hmm. Got it. Interesting. And especially, you know, if you are a bootstrap company and you don't have a, have a, you know, a great brand to begin with, what would you do to attract, you know, great people so that you have a great founding team? Uh, what, uh, what advice you give to founders on, on compensation uh, for both the revenue uh, guys or non-founder product guys, engineering talent? Yeah. Well, so here's the thing. I think you need to boots, you need to de-risk the company a bit right before people before you uh, can hire folks. Because, and that's the hard part, right, is usually you're doing it on your own or with one other co founder. And the two of you, you know, are kind of scraping and clawing to get to 10k a month or 20k a month just to keep get the business afloat. And I call it first you build a product, then you build a business, and then you build a company. And so building a product is like the early days, even like, even at like four grand a month, five grand a month, you're not really a business yet. <laughs> not really. You're just kind of, you're mostly a product and you're still sorting out. You get into that 10, 20,000 a month. It's like, okay, I have money coming in. I can start spending some, like that's when you start tracking expenses and thinking about, oh, maybe we try to run break even, right? That's where you become a business. And then I think probably around a million a year, you start building a company. That's where you hire managers. You know, you start company building basically. I start looking at an org chart, which you never do before then. Um, in those early days, I think the biggest advantage that you have as a founder who's trying to hire an early employee is that it used to be that we hired remote and no one else did. We lost some of that with COVID, but I do think we're getting some of it back, right? The bigger companies are going back to the office. The other thing you can offer though is um, the, it's the ability to have an impact on the company and to not be a cog in a wheel. I live in Minneapolis and Target headquarters is here, like the world headquarters, Target the retailer, uh, Best Buy is here, General Mills. And we used to hire developers from them who made more money working at, you know, at Target HQ, writing software, writing e-com software and such, but they didn't like their jobs because they're like, I'm a cog in a wheel. And I write this code and three months later, it like goes into production because it's this huge, you know, company or the politics. It's like, well, if you're on the wrong team, it sucks, right? So these are the things that you need to call out as a small company of like, look, there's four of us with no politics. You have a huge impact. Our code base is amazing. It's one of the best code bases you'll ever work on. Like these are the things I used to emphasize in, in, in Drip. And that brings great developers if you're looking for, for that type of talent. The other thing is if you're hiring in terms of salaries, you know, the US is expensive. I still hire in the US when I can, but going north to Canada, same time zone, Salaries are 20% less-ish, 20, 25% less. Going south to South America, Central America, salaries are half. It's not a, time zones are almost the same. It's not a bad way to go. I hire, we have someone in Europe as well. So I think getting hung up on, well, I have to hire in my country. Sometimes that's the right call, but also we live in one of the most expensive salary-wise countries in the world. And so I think having some flexibility there is, is a win if you're bootstrapping. If you raise venture, you have 10 million in the bank, yeah, maybe you do hire all in the U.S. Mm, got it, got it. And um, and how would you you know structure the interview process for uh, you know uh, for a new sales rep or a new product guy? Uh, w- what would be the structure like for you? 
So for interview process, good. I'm glad you use those examples and not a developer because a developer is is a different process altogether. But for a salesperson, I've interviewed a few, but for a product person, I have done that that a lot or several times. So first there is I hire a recruiter. Don't don't do your own recruiting. It's too much time. It's 40 hours, I used to say. 40 hours of my time if I was going to run the recruitment process. Writing the job description, posting it all over, filtering resumes, doing the initial call, you know, 20 minute, 30 minutes phone screen, and then getting into 40 hours. I you don't have to hire an expensive recruiter. You can hire a flat fee recruiter. Like there's one called Remote First Recruiting. And it's like five grand. And they'll do almost everything a standard recruiter does. And then they have like a $1,500 package that's even less. So even bootstrapped, I would do one of those type things. So with that said, the process is you post the job, you promote the job. Um, someone filters resumes, not me. And someone does these initial 20, 30 minute phone screens. To, it's just a sanity check, right? Are, are they who they say they are? You know, Are they a reasonable person? Do I think they'll be a fit? Um, then there is a... Usually it's a one hour interview with their, whoever will be managing them. Sometimes that's a pair interview where it's two people, you know, on, on the candidate, but, uh, usually it's one. And then I think depending on what stage you're at, like both my, like microconf and tiny seed are two separate companies and they're each have teams of six people. So I am, so usually we, and we have managers there, right? So usually the manager does a one hour interview and says, well, I've whittled it down to these two. And then I do an interview with both of those, a one hour interview. I like the book called uh, Who, I think it's called Who, A Method for Hiring, The A Method for Hiring, whatever it is, you can Google that or you know go on Amazon. It's very in-depth and I don't do the, I mean, a, a Who interview process is like six hours, eight hours long. I don't do that, I shorten it, but I did use, I do use a lot of tips from that uh, in my own abbreviated fashion. Today I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives Increase the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. All right. Uh, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. And, you know, especially when you are interviewing somebody, uh, you know, you're spending like an hour or two hours with them. How can you really test for, you know, grit and curiosity in the interview process? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, that's the thing is like resume and, and small talk is not the way to interview. Yeah. Right. That the biggest mistake I made early on as an interview. So I've my first interview of me interviewing people ever was probably in his 20 years ago now. And I was nervous and I was trying to be nice and I didn't want to ask hard questions. And that's the worst thing you can do. These days, I will ask hard questions, but I ask them very tactfully, right? Very nicely, to where it almost feels like I'm being nice, but I'm asking instead of saying, Boy, it sure looks like you're a job hopper. I say things like so I noticed like last three jobs, you've been there at eight, nine months each. Let's talk through each of those. I'd love to hear, you know, what didn't work out there. Right. And so they tell me the first one and it's like, oh, my boss was this or that. All right. Talk to me about the next one. Oh, my boss was this or that. Third one. Oh, my boss didn't see me. And I'm starting seeing, wait a minute. <laughs> In my head, I'm seeing a pattern. Is it the boss or is it you? Um, so asking things, you know, like that, being willing to ask hard questions. I interviewed someone a couple of weeks ago and on this, the first answer was a was a valid and honest answer. 
but I dug in deeper and I said, no, tell me more about what you did on that project. What specifically did you do? And then a little more. Okay. So you did that. Did you ever do exactly X, Y, Z? Because this is what I need them to do. I haven't told them that, but like, I need them to know how to produce video or what, you know, whatever the thing is. And most people are honest, right? And most people, I mean, look, some people could just sociopathically bald face lie to you. And I don't know how to get around that. Right. But if assuming everyone's generally honest, the further you dig in, the more people will reveal things. So that's what I do a lot. Um, that's just around experience and trying to match that grit is a harder one to ask about other than I ask about, I do ask about like hard times at work. Like what was the hardest project you ever worked on? Talk me through, you know, did you ever have kind of a death mark project, death March project? And how did you, uh, how did you see it through? Hmm. Got it. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, when it comes to SaaS, there, there could be so many different metrics, uh, that somebody needs to track, which is, uh, the ARR, MRR, you know, what's the churn rate and all that. Uh, you know, somebody who's, uh, who, who wants to start a business or just started, what are the key metrics that they should track? Uh, and you know, with, what is the framework that, that you would suggest to them? Yeah. Yeah. So the, so I have something called the three high, three low framework, which is six metrics and three should be high and three should be low. Okay. Before that, I have two North, two North star and then three high, three low. So the two North star are MRR or error and month over month growth. These are obvious. I mean, that's just what that, those are the two big ones, right? The three high, three low is I'm looking, I'm referring to my hard copy of my book as we're speaking, um, three high. Yeah. Okay. So we want low, we want your cost to acquire a customer. You should track that. You want your sales effort, which usually is number of touch points and duration to close from first, first contact or first demo. And then, uh, the other third low is churn and churn is really the most important of all those, to be honest. And then high, you want three, you want your annual contract value as high as possible. You want expansion revenue as high as possible. And you want referrals as high as possible. Referrals are very hard to track, but, uh, those are the six and there are ways to impact them. Some you can control more than others. Some are black boxes and you have to kind of dig in. Like if my churn is high, it's like, okay, like founders come to me. I have high churn. Okay, let's try to fix it. Is your churn high in the first two months someone signs up and then it flattens out? Well, I don't know. Okay, you need to go find that out. Is your churn high with a particular customer segment? Is it only the cheap ones? You know, they're paying you $10 a month versus the companies uh, paying you $1,000 a month are not churning very high. We need to go find that out, right? So there's a bunch of segmentation you have to do. You can't just look at a number. My churn is 6%. It's like that doesn't, that tells me as much as a two and a half star Amazon review. Okay, let's look at Amazon, two and a half stars. Does that tell you much? No, that's an average. What does that mean? What if I have a thousand one stars and a thousand five stars? That's that's a two and a half star review. But but what if I'm in kind of the more five star camp? Like everyone who rated it a five star really needed the product, and everyone who rated it a one, you know, lives in a a place that's that where it rusted because they live near the ocean. You know, I mean, just it's weird things like that, right? You have to dig into the reviews themselves because a number doesn't one number doesn't say it. And it's similar with churn. You have to segment by price point and by duration uh, to dig in. So that's just one example. I named eight different things, and each of them has their own, I think, level of detail that you need to drill into. Mm, got it. And and you said churn is really important. You know how how much you know should should somebody worry about churn and any uh, any a suggestions? Lot. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. No, churn is the death of SaaS, right? I mean, that is by definition, if you look at lifetime value, it is, uh, you know, your average revenue per account per month divided by your churn. So the higher your churn gets, the lower your lifetime value or lower even your annual contract value can be impacted by this. And all of that dictates how much I can spend on my team to hire, how much I can spend to acquire customers, how much I can spend on everything, right? It, it, it is a huge deal. Some businesses, if you have low price points, inevitably you will have higher churn. I, I have, I don't know that I've ever seen an exception to that. I keep saying in almost all cases, but really it's every case I've ever seen. If you have low price points and higher price points, the low price plans churn higher. They always do. And if you have SaaS apps that are priced lower, like Hittail, my yeah. one around 2011, it, I believe the pricing was $10, 20 40 and 80 those were the four tiers and you could go up from there but most people were on the 10 20 and, and 40 and churn was high churn was seven eight percent a month and that meant that i couldn't i was unless i got that really wide funnel like i plateaued around 25 30 grand and could never push mm -hmm. a pass so yeah if your churn is above three percent a month if you're kind of bootstrapped like that's a problem mm -hmm. it's a problem mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there's there's a lot of different things you can do it depends so it depends if you're pre-product market fit, meaning you're before ten, twenty thousand dollars of MRR, you probably just haven't yet built any something people want yet. You know, you're marketing, but you're you're not retaining people, right? But if if you've found pretty strong product market fit, people are sticking around, but then they're churning for X Y Z reasons. You have to figure out: well, are they churning because the market's changing? Is there a competitor that's swiping them? Is the product having issues? Uh, am I finding the wrong people? You know, am I not marketing to the right segments? That's, there's a lot of factors to go into there. Mm, got it. Um, and, and, you know, Rob, earlier you, you, you talked about angel investing, you invested uh, in your personal capacity and also through trying seed. Any, uh, any advice for, you know, executives and founders who want to do uh, angel investing? Uh, and, you know, should, should founders be angel investing? You know, does it, you know, distract them from the main job? I didn't. I didn't angel invest while I was a founder. It was too, I just, it was one more thing to think about. The only exceptions were deals that literally came to me, like Jason Cohen starting WP Engine in 2011. And he emails me and says, he, he had read my book. We were bloggers. He knew me. We, I think we'd probably met by that. No, I don't know if we'd met, to be honest. But anyways, um, and he says, I'm starting this company. And I said, great. I don't even know what it does, but I'll scrape money together, you know, and, and put it in. So it was stuff like that where to me, it was kind of a shoe in that later paid for my house, by the way. Um, it was, it was a good investment, but I don't see a reason. Well, I mean, to me, I was always betting on myself and every dollar that I had to put into my own company, I felt like I was in control of leveraging that up. Right. And I was trying to turn, you know, that money into millions or tens of millions. I don't have an issue with angel investing in other people, but I do think a, it's a little bit of a distraction for me personally and be the the use of funds i would prefer just like i there were you know this is not advice but like there were a few years where i was tied on funds as i was growing the company i did not contribute to my retirement for those three years because mm -hmm. i thought you know what my retirement is this company i'm building and it turns out i was right but if i had been wrong that you know that's that's kind of a bummer mm -hmm. got it and um uh, and and want to talk about the book, you know, uh, you've written a couple of books, you know, what was the process of writing the book and why, why, why do you want to launch on Kickstarter? 
Yeah, good question. So launching on Kickstarter, I'll take first because it's kind of simple. There's th really three reasons because I've launched this is my fourth book, actually. Um, and all the prior ones, it was just a, a launch like you would launch, right? And here's a landing page and click the button to buy the book or click on Amazon to pre-order the book. Um, I wanted to do Kickstarter number one because I wanted to print hardbacks and you have to order hardcovers in advance and they're quite expensive. So I, I did want to do a big pre-order thing. So, okay. I could, Kickstarter is designed for pre-orders. Um, I could have put up a landing page though, right? And still did, hey, pre-order the book. I also then wanted to have a bunch of tiers. I really like being able to bundle this, like this plus audio, hardcover plus a PDF. I wanted a hardcover plus be, the ability to ask me questions about the book on a live Q&A, on a recorded Q&A, the ability to do a one-on-one -on -one call, you know, a bunch of tiers, seven, eight tiers. That starts to get weird on a landing page. Kickstarter is designed for that. And then the third thing uh, really is that I, see, I view Kickstarter almost, it's like a community, right? A social network of sorts. And I have a good following on YouTube. I have a good following on Twitter. I have a good following on my podcast and my email list. But like, I've never, and I've backed 200, I've backed 275 Kickstarters, but I've never like done a Kickstarter. And so for me, like I get, I'm happiest when I'm learning and trying new things that may or may not work. And this is one of those. So to me, it's like pushing into that, the resistance of like, ooh, it's scary to do. That was a reason I wanted to do it. Writing the book was is hard. You would think that after four or after three, you know, this would have gotten easier, and it didn't. It was actually harder because today I have a day job, I have two day jobs, as as you heard, with MicroConf and Tiny Seed. So I did. I started off really strong, and it took about two months, and I wrote half the book in like two months. I was like, "This is amazing! I'm going to write this thing in four months. I'm going to be done." And then I stalled out for almost a year almost a year with like no writer's block and just couldn't carve the time and didn't know where I wanted to go. So I actually wound up hiring something I've never done. I hired a writing coach who really helped me um, get push. She, it was accountability. She would also take, I knew I had like, I have a YouTube video and I have a podcast all about this exact topic. And she would take that and turn it into this chapter or this section. So she would write it, but it was all my stuff, you know, and then I would go through and make it turn it into my voice. So you might call it ghostwriting in a way, but not in the way that like traditionally when you think of ghostwriting, it's like you didn't write the book, someone else wrote it for you. It wasn't like that. These are all my thoughts, my ideas, all from other 650 podcast episodes and 200 YouTube videos I pulled out, you know, it's so that helped me from the time she started. I think it was like four months and then the, the other half was was written. So it was a painful process, but I am definitely glad to be on the other side of it. Awesome, and uh, you know, uh, uh, you've been a you know OG of podcasting. Any any advice for you know podcasters like us on how to how to grow the the audience? And it's one of the hardest things, dude, because. Like you can go on YouTube, you know, again, I keep mentioning like I have a podcast and I have a YouTube channel and the pod, the YouTube channel grows so much faster because yeah. it's, it has this virality right now. There's platform risk there. It's video. So it's hard. It's way more expensive to do YouTube. I mean, we pay a lot of money for editors, but that's growing faster. The only way I've found to grow the podcast is to go on other podcasts. It's whether it's an exchange like I did with my first million where Sam Park came on mine and I went on there that that was noticeable. Um, or to come on this podcast, I'm sure I'll get a few, you know, a few new listeners. The other thing is shipping every week forever. Mm. I mean, that's basically what I've done for 13 years, right? It's 655 episodes, but that's not necessarily, it's what I've done. I don't know if that's the best way, but it's just, it just keeps growing, you know? And so you stick around long enough, but there's no hacks. Even I've like, I've talked to Noah, like Noah Kagan and I are friends and Sam Parr, like we've all talked and I'm like, how? 
how do you growth hack a podcast? Because these guys are growth hackers, right? And they're like, yeah, not really any way to do it. <laughs> other, <laughs> other than be guests on other podcasts. I mean, that's really it. Got it. Interesting. And uh, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? I am real. Well, so I'm going to give you just a business book that I'm really liking uh, right now. It's a book called Founding Sales, and it is by Pete Kazanji. It is, it's very, it's, it's so good. It's in-depth. He was a founder who is not a salesperson. He had to learn it. And he basically was looking, he's like, well, there's got to be a book that teaches me this. And there wasn't. So he wrote it. It's like 500 pages. It covers everything, like crazy detail. So highly, highly recommend it. Got it. We'll down in show notes. And, you know, if you could go back in time when you started writing a book, what, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? I would have gotten help from the start. Like I, my biggest weakness is I tend to try to do everything myself, too many things without help. And as I said, the writing coach came in and helped me get it, helped me get it done. And I should have just done that from the start. Got it. And, and, and do you have any favorite online tools, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? I love Airtable right now. We have so many apps built on Airtable and we just keep doing it. Now, every time we think of something that we want to hack together, I'm like, let's just build it in Airtable. Okay. Awesome. We'll put down the show notes. And uh, Rob, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about your book, The SaaS Playbook? So sasplaybook.com if they want to find out about the book. I am on Twitter. People can ask questions at Rob Walling. And of course, mentioned the podcast a few times, Startups for the Rest of Us. Uh, it comes out every week if you're interested in hearing more about. I, I say it's about bootstrap SaaS. Really, it's about being an entrepreneur and about probably more than half of the stuff I say is broadly applicable. We have folks who are e-commerce, info product, you know, whatever, any online business that get value out of it. Got it, Wilbur, in the show notes. Rob, uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for take, taking our time speaking to us. Absolutely. I had a great time. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.